This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy, and thank you for being here with us once again. It's a true pleasure to bring these episodes to you. In this week's episode, we speak with Dr. Ginger Nash, who is a naturopathic physician who's been practicing for over 22 years. She's based in New Haven, Connecticut. We're going to speak about menopause, but so much more. Um, We go into the inner workings of the menopausal transition. Um, We also speak about Dr. Nash's unique ability to tie together some of the core components of naturopathic medicine, such as nutrigenomics, infectious disease approaches, and the ability to work with chronic illness. She has a unique capacity to use homeopathy, and she also has a deep knowledge of hormone um, medicine and hormone therapy and supporting the hormones uh, during this menopausal transition. I have to say that there are a few of these episodes that have left me as inspired as this one. Having a naturopathic physician like Dr. Nash to look towards as an example of pulling together all the the aspects of our medicine um, in a way that's very grounded in science, is very thorough and deep. She's um, easy to understand. She's an excellent teacher. Um, She knows what she's talking about. She, She tries to really treat the individual and that's sort of a cliche but I think when you listen to her speak she has gone to very deep lengths to to really personalize her medicine and get to know her patient on a very individual basis so there's no surprise to me that she's been so successful as a provider and a teacher so I hope you'll join me in this this true delight of hearing this doctor speak and and talk about her craft and also walk us through um, some information that's helpful to understand when approaching menopause. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did and uh, welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. We join the interview in progress. Dr. Nash, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. It's great to have you on here with me today. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. Um, You're someone who I've actually followed throughout my career. um, And uh, I've just always, I know we've spoke, we spoke one time professionally, um, but I'm, I'm glad to have this chance to get to know you a little bit more and uh, kind of hear some of the inner workings of what you do. Awesome. Glad to be here. I'm a big talker, so no, yeah. no shortage of words. Yeah. So <laughs> I, you know, when I was, when I was learning about you, I didn't realize that you, um, grew up kind of on both coasts, like part East coast, part yeah. West coast. How was that? Cause I actually had a similar experience, um, well, born I, on the East coast, moved to the West coast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I used to make a joke that since I grew up on Long Island, I was half Jewish and half Italian, even though I'm Irish Catholic by, <laughs> by genetics. Yes. Uh, and so, yeah, my mom and I, I'm the youngest of six, and we moved out to San Diego. One of my older sisters had started a business that was doing really well out in San Diego. So I moved in the middle of high school to San Diego. And I was so um, naive that I actually thought that was like a bad move to move from Long Island to San Diego. But it only took me a few months. And I I spent um, many years in San Diego. So I I went to undergrad there. And then I was working on a master's degree in the history of medicine, um, a joint degree between San Diego State. And I took some classes at UCSD as well. 
Um, and that's when I had my big epiphany about naturopathic medicine. Um, like many of us, I had a personal health crisis and uh, I needed emergency abdominal surgery, which I didn't even have any health insurance. So it was a quite traumatic experience. I was 24 and had a huge ovarian cyst that was in danger of rupturing and causing all kinds of hormonal problems and whatnot. And so I got out of the hospital actually on my 25th birthday, and I had been working as a research assistant for a, a woman, um, Susan Califf, working in the Women's Studies Department at San Diego State. And she was writing a book about the history of nature cure. And so I knew that these schools existed. And I literally had an epiphany laying in bed one night, the night I got out of the hospital, and just thought, you know, I think I'm going to go to naturopathic medical school after this really awful experience I had just had around my own health. Um, and I woke up the next morning and called the schools. And this is before the internet, back in the olden stone, day, stone age days, and got brochures. And, and I never looked back. I was like, this is my path. Um, and I had come from a, from a history background, and I found that, you know, working in the history of medicine really served me so well in terms of doing a naturopathic degree. Um, I was quite aware going into it that there were these competing metal models of medicine and these different ways to look at the body and understand the way the body works, you know, everything from Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, and even the, you know, herbal tradition that came out of Europe. And, and so I really wasn't, um, I didn't feel, I don't think as insecure as some of my classmates did about like, you know, whether they wanted to go to regular med school and didn't get in or whatever. Um, but it was just really like, um, an intellectual exercise for me to go to naturopathic medical school. So I, I, I just sopped it all up. I love Fascinating. it. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really interesting that you had perspectives of other systems and you, you saw, you probably saw that um, each one has its strengths. Each one has Absolutely. its limitations. Absolutely. And I would say the biggest um, gem that I got from, from studying history in terms of application of our medicine is the whole notion of the doctrine of specific etiology and how, I mean, I think I still say almost to every patient every day, it's never one thing. It's never, there's no one reason why you have chronic disease. It's a combination of all types of imbalances and dietary and stress management and stressors and toxin exposure and personal history and Therefore, you know, our medicine is so wonderful because we have so many different tools to get people better. So it was like I was never looking for that magic bullet. And that's really a lot of times what we have to undo, right, when we work with people that aren't familiar with holistic medicine to just sort of undo that concept of, um, oh, if I have disease X, then I get, you know, drug B or, you know, intervention C or whatever it yeah. is. Be. Yeah, I mean, it's that, uh, I think I've heard it um, described as like a two-tack theory. Like, you know, it's if you're sitting on, if the pro, if you're sitting on two tacks and you remove one of the tacks, you still have, you're still in pain. You still you're, have a tack in your butt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's a better way of saying it. I'm trying yeah. to be artful, but yeah. yeah, you still have to kind of pull out that other tack. Well, I'm from New York, so, you know, there might Keep be a <laughs> it's all right. That's 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 my roots. So I yeah. can I, I can bring that with you. So. Yeah. Where did you grow up in New York? What part? Well, I was I was actually born in Connecticut. So okay, like not too far from New Haven in Meriden. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then my my family, my father's side, were all in Queens. Yeah. So Kew Gardens area. So yeah. I was all always. My part of Long Island, my my grandparents were in Floral Park and Queens. So, yeah. So, yeah, just kind of that's that's uh, that's my and the other side's from Boston. So that's why that that marriage didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Red, Red Sox versus Yankees. <laughs> totally. Um, so the um, 
thing I would I'd love to hear is just kind of what it was like at uh, it was once called National College of Naturopathic Medicine when I was actually going through school and then they recently changed their name to National Univers no National University of Natural Medicine. Medicine yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it used to be NCNM. What was it like back in the nineties? Because um, you know, I mean, it's the professions changed so much. I mean, yeah. Even since I I graduated in two thousand six, so what was it like back then? Well, it was a bit chaotic. I mean, in second year, um, and I guess that's probably why I mentioned the sort of the vision that I had, and I was very vision driven coming into the program because we I lost like half my class, um, and it was um, you know a, a bit of professional or institutional disorganization and. Um, there were a lot of turnover of teachers. And, you know, I think once um, NCNM moved to the Ross Island campus, which is where they still are, um, that happened in my third year or fourth year. So there was a period of time where during second year, we actually had classes in Mall 205. The school was out pretty far out in the southeast part of Portland, Oregon. And there was a mall nearby. So they they set us up in there temporarily. And we were literally like next to the nail salon and the fumes. <laughs> we had left the like asbestos ridden like elementary school that was turned into school. It was pretty it was pretty crazy. Um, and then there was some embezzlement scandal that happened with some of the uh, administration and the president. So there was a lot of a lot of chaos and, you know, people go through so much change when they go through naturopathic medical school anyway. So um, we lost a lot of people. And um, I really think, you know, just like, just like elementary and high school education and even college, like you just really need a few really good teachers to, to get you through. Um, and I found those people at NCNM. There were some excellent teachers. Um, some of them are still teaching there, I think, like Stephen Sandberg Lewis and Mm -hmm. um, Dick Tom was one of my teachers and, um, you know, I learned, I learned what I needed to, to learn, um, not to, you know, trivialize our education, but I learned like how to be safe and not kill anybody as a doctor. And, um, then the real, real learning of course comes, you know, once you get to clinic and once you really start interacting with patients and things aren't like the textbooks, you know, um, so, so I would say it was, it was a, it was a roller coaster of a time. Um, and it was, you know, I, like many of my fellow students, like went through lots of personal growth and change as well. So it was a, it was a topsy turvy time. Yeah. yeah, I've never been in an on again, off again relationship in my life, except when I was in med school either. So it was like everything was, everything was changing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, I've been really impressed with the graduates from NUNM um, ever since I sort of interacted with starting in, inter to interact with graduates. Um, there just is a there's sort of a, a comfortableness in in the naturopathic skin, so to speak. Like there's there's just a, a an ease with wearing the medicine and being a naturopathic doctor that I see come out of that, that education down there compared to some of the other schools. Um, I don't know what it is, but that's a consistent kind of like DNA that I see come out of there. That's nice. And some of my dearest friends are still teaching there. I think Dr. Bruzewitz is still teaching nutrition and she and I went to school together. She was a year behind me at NCNM and, um, you know, Paul Anderson was the year before me and Lori Regan was the year before me. And so I was in school with a lot of really amazing um, students. And I, le I learned from them as well. Barbara McDonald, who's gave me my first craniosacral treatment and helped me fall in love with that modality. And um, she's in Maine running a big clinic. And so, yeah, it's really, it's, it's kind of cool to feel like a, like when I'm moving into the elder status in the profession, you know, which is kind of fun. Yeah. 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 So I'd love to hear how you weave it all, weave some of the things together, because you're one of the few doctors out there that really spans the spectrum of the different modalities and philosophies of our medicine. So um, 
in case our listeners aren't familiar with your work, um, you you are um, able to speak on a deep level about nutrigenomics, also homeopathy, um, Chinese medicine, uh, hormone therapy, infectious disease. I mean, and, and I'm not just talking about dabbling in these areas. I mean, you can go deep in, in a lot of these areas. How did, how did that come about? The only one I would take off the list is Chinese medicine. I, okay. I, I, I do use herbal medicine and I use some Chinese herbs, but I'm more of a Western herbalist. And of course the Chinese herbs, there's so many amazing healing medicines in that, in that tradition. So I do use some of them, but, um, I would not say I'm an expert at, um, formulating Chinese herbal theories or, or formulas. Um, well, I guess, gee, how do I can encapsulate this? I guess, um, the first year that I was out of school, I worked, um, for a company transitions for health in downtown Portland before I moved to New Haven, Connecticut. So I was only in um, Oregon for one more year after graduation and then moved to the East Coast in 99. And I worked um, alongside Tori Hudson. I had preceptored with her. She was one of my teachers at NCNM. And then she also worked um, in conjunction with this company along with some other really smart docs uh, that were trained by, um, John Lee and David Zava of, um, uh, ZRT labs. And John Lee was uh, a pioneer in the field of natural progesterone cream. So I literally spoke to hundreds, if not thousands of women that were using topical progesterone cream and working on hormones. And I also started to travel around the country and lecture about these topics. Um, and it became, it was a great education because I really learned hormones inside out and backwards. And it became clear to me pretty quickly that not everyone did okay on, on even bioidentical hormones, not to mention synthetic HRT, but, but that I also wasn't really interested in having a practice that focused on women's health. Um, but was really about just micromanaging dosages dosages of hormones. So at the same time that I was working um, for for Transitions for Health, I was also immersing myself um, in the study of French homeopathy or what I like to call complex homeopathy. And it was very different than the kind of classical homeopathy we learned um, in school in that it didn't um, rely on just using one remedy at a time and then waiting a long period of time to see what changed. I, I immediately felt like people are too sick and too complicated and we need to come at them, as I said earlier, with a multitude of different approaches because people are sick for so many different reasons. They're not going to get well with one thing, you know, um, so the idea of complex homeopathy really appealed to me because it's using um, combination uh, homeopathics that are formulated very specifically to, to target more organ systems and help improve the body's uh, eliminative capacity. So helping improve eliminations. And I immediately saw that even just helping uh, or, or just starting with the foundation of just helping people, you know, pee and poop and sweat and deal with their emotional body, um, helping them, you know, manage those very important systems. You could get a lot of people better. You could mm -hmm. get rid of their headaches. You could get rid of some of their arthritis. You could get people, um, you know, their eczema, all kinds of things could get better just from improving eliminations and using homeopathy um, to do that was a really wonderful um, entry point for so many patients for me. So I studied under a French homeopath who is now deceased, Dr. Gerard Guignot, for about 10 years. And I, I really learned Materia Medica, learned the application of biotherapeutic drainage. I taught for Soroyal for many years um, using a whole system of drainage remedies for them. I now use a number of different um, brands of drainage remedies. Um, but that's that whole piece. And then um, I met Peter Diadamo. Mm -hmm. and so um, I heard him do a keynote speech at a conference in New York. And I immediately went up to him afterward. And I had heard of the blood type diet for the listeners that don't know who Peter Diadamo is. He's the um, 
author of Eat Right for Your Type, which is one of the like 10 best selling health books of all time. So he's pretty well known. And um, I kind of, you know, attended the lecture because I was at the conference and I wasn't really, you know, expecting fireworks, but I was totally lit up by Peter and immediately went up to him and he practices in Connecticut. So I ended up becoming friends with him and then and then working for him for three years um, when he had a clinic in Wilton, um, Connecticut. So I really got immersed in nutrigenomics and um, really got a lot of nutrition, deeper into nutrition. And so I, I find that, you know, and Peter was talking about epigenetics, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and so to me, what started to come together was this concept of the antiquated concept of miasm, which is like the driver, the imbalances behind, and that's a homeopathic term. So looking at that and and also layering on this whole concept of epigenetics and the way we come into the world, right, with our genes and with our genetic blueprint, but the way that blueprint is interpreted is all about our environment, and that's the whole science of epigenetics. And I found the concept of miasm and the concept of epigenetics to really kind of dovetail nicely. Um, and because I had those two different lenses of, of looking at people, I could sort of like use my homeopathy brain and say, okay, this person has all this, um, you know, problems with inflammation and, you know, they've had, uh, parents with heart disease and inflammatory bowel disease and, you know, and then use my epigenetics brain and nutrigenomics brain and think about things through a blood type lens and a, and a metabolic type lens. So it, it, it really, um, I guess the short answer is learning these different systems and then learning how to process a lot of information about the person that's in front of you is really the key, right? Like, because we're all looking for patterns. That's what we do. We look for right. pattern recognition and then we do blood tests. But a lot of times I'm doing the blood test to confirm what I think is the, um, the issue um, or hormone tests, which I don't use blood for, but, um, and I do a lot of oat testing as well. So organic acid testing, which is a urine test. So it's like, you have to learn how to take a really careful history and then use whatever system you have. And that can be Chinese medicine. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think people uh, that know TCM and know traditional Chinese medicine have that same type of thing. You know, it's like you have a typology and then you sort of learn how to like see the big patterns and then you get more and more individualized over time with the person. You know, you do the foundational stuff first, and then then maybe you want to do some genetic testing, or then maybe you want to do something uh, a little bit more specific to get some more data. So yeah. I'm, I mean, I've been in practice for 22 years, and I can honestly say there's never a, a month that goes by, or even a week that goes by, that I'm not like deepening my knowledge and learning. I mean, the sky's the limit, right? I mean, we, we're never going to be bored as naturopathic right. doctors. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what I'm hearing um, as you're talking through that with us is that there's this, first of all, this ability to teach, which mm. with the ability and skill set to teach and, and having the opportunity to teach, you probably came across your edges and, and you really had to go deep with your learning as uh, it's one of the, as I say, this one's the best, best ways to learn is to, to teach. Yeah. yeah. If you have to get up in front of a room full of naturopathic doctors or nutritionists or whatever. Yeah. It's good to, it's good to know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and and then then I, then, everything I'm always open to being wrong and learning new things and adjusting my view. And I think that's really important as an, as a naturopathic doctor as well. So. Yeah. And I'm also hearing that there's this, this, drive or desire to continue to treat the individual and like keep going deep with that process. And the more it's almost like personalized medicine to the nth degree. It's like you coming at it from like homeopathic medicine is, is really a, a personalized medicine. Like, I mean, if, if I don't think 
people have an appreciation for the level of details and cares that that goes into picking a remedy or you know pres- uh, prescribing a remedy for a patient, but then combining that with the nutrigenomics, you know, it's just like we're you're really. I'm hearing that you just have this drive to to kind of really get to know how to be precise with your your care. Absolutely. And and also too, I should mention that in in terms of the way I practice homeopathy, I mean the the sort of I use the analogy of an onion all the time. I think probably many of us do. You know, you're you're addressing the most superficial layers which might be some drainage remedies and cleaning up the diet and working on some basic nutrients, maybe stabilizing the person by addressing you know, the adrenals or something like that. But then as you peel off the layers, you get down to, you know, more and more individual care. And that's when I do use single homeopathics, you know, constitutionals or, um, you know, high dose specific homeopathics. So I I do use single homeopathics in conjunction with the combination remedies. Um, So it's not like I've, um, you know, thrown all that out the window, um, which, you know, some naturopaths do, they don't, they don't like homeopathy. It doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate with them. And, and they have practices that have nothing to do with homeopathy. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously living in Connecticut, um, you're dealing with patients. I can see how you kind of became an expert in Lyme disease. Um, yeah, not by choice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's, uh, I think now we have a, a real appreciation for that since we have, we're all dealing with, you know, a worldwide um, condition that's, and now with uh, long COVID and, you know, so. And you yeah, were, these pathogens are, you know, in the mix. I mean, it's not just Lyme, right? It's all the co-infections. It's now mold toxicity on top of it and uh, chronic viral disease. Absolutely. Which naturopaths have been treating for years anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'd love to steer into talking about um, sort of the topic we, we were discussing today, which was um, looking at women's health, specifically the menopausal transition and menopause. Yeah. Now your, your practice has taken, um, you've been focusing more and more on this area. Um, well, maybe you have all along, it sounds like, but um, it sounds like in the last no, couple I- of years, Yeah. I mean, I've always enjoyed working with menopausal women and, um, you know, it's funny how when you start to go through something yourself, you, you get really good at it. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I've had an online program that I've taken, um, I guess about 60 women through, I'm not currently offering it, but, and it's always changing, but, um, I do see a lot of menopausal women in my practice and, it's something that's always amazing to me that, um, you know, even, even women that I know are like really well read and highly educated, they still really don't know what to expect. Um, and, uh, there's still a lot of, you know, stigma around talking about it. Um, I think the culture, you know, still worships youth and women can have a really hard time like facing, facing this transition and it's a big one. Um, I mean, I call it puberty in reverse. So it's, and it is a roller coaster of hormones. So women can really not only develop new symptoms, um, you know, of course, like the classics, hot flashes and anxiety is actually very often one of the first telltale signs of, of the beginning of perimenopause. Um, but anything that they've been dealing with, like digestive issues or muscle aches and pains, like can get actually get worse at menopause too. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it'd be interesting yeah. to, because you have the background in kind of the history of medicine. And um, one of the ways I was introduced to uh, caring for menopause as a student was a really great discussion I had with my, one of my mentors, Dr. Jane Giltonen, who she, she was sort of our kind of um, expert in menopause. And um, she, she shared how, you know, not everybody looks at menopause the same way in the world. Yes. And I'd love to kind of back out and kind of hear, hear your kind of worldview of menopause and yeah. 
and the, I think it's really important for people to learn this because it really set me on the right path to to really honoring it um, and people's choices as has how they want to approach menopause. Yeah, even here in North America, ten percent of women will go through menopause with like zero to very very mild symptoms. So it's not a guarantee that your whole life and your whole body are going to fall apart. Um, I just want to say that too. Um, but yeah, cultures that you know respect you know aging and respect elders like China. You know they don't have the same relationship to menopause as as we do here in North America and in Western Europe. Um, it's just not, it's not as problematic for many women. Um, and, you know, I think that there's an incredible amount of expectations that we as women put on ourselves to like feel good all the time and feel settled. And, you know, we're oftentimes taking care of other people whether it's in our profession or in our personal lives. Um, so there's a lot of caregiving and, and menopause is really a time for us to go inside and really kind of figure out, you know, what we want this next phase of our life to be. So it's a time when, when women often feel like they want to retreat and that's not the way the culture is set up. That's not the way our society is set up. I mean, more than ever, you know, I think, radical capitalist society where work is considered, you know, the pinnacle of, and success is measured by productivity and income and all of that. It's just, you know, it's just not, it's not okay for women to just take time off and really go through that process. And, and it's just not, it's not even not okay. It's just not possible. I mean, I include myself in that. (laughs) I mean, you know, I, I, I can't, take a few months off and go on a vision quest about my menopausal transition. It's right, like, right. I've got to figure out how to navigate it while I'm running a practice and taking care of a teenager and two dogs and a husband who's unemployed due to the pandemic. So it's, mm-hmm. everybody has their challenges, you know? Um, yeah. So I think it's really important for women to, first of all, um, acknowledge and dive into the fact that this is a big transition and that it's going to wreak some havoc or at least, you know, stir some things up at the very least. Um, and as our ovaries are going into retirement, that process can take quite some time. And if you're under a lot of stress, um, and if you're not eating a healthy diet and you don't have a lot of good nutrients, it's just going to make the transition that much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, So it really is, again, back to what we were saying earlier, like there's really these foundational pieces that need to be in play and in place um, before, you know, you can really get down to the nitty gritty. Okay, does this person have problems with estrogen metabolism or is it that their testosterone is too low or is it that their adrenal uh, axis is so depleted, you know, that their brain is is not regulating the whole stress resilience axis. So it's, it's more, um, it's a more comprehensive type of approach to look at things both, you know, from the cultural perspective and the way women are valued or devalued in our society. Um, and then down to the nitty gritty of biochemistry of hormone metabolism, you know, so, and insulin resistance. I mean, that's another, huge problem for so many women at menopause is they gain weight and it's very difficult to lose it. And that's absolutely related to stress hormones, um, as well as sex hormones, but even more, more stress hormones is a, is a problem. Mm -hmm. It's really like you have to really get a big picture sense of what's going on for someone, um, in order to really figure out where the best intervention is going to be. Sure. So you've written about the three stages of menopause. Um, Can we go into that a little bit? Sure. Um, Yeah. So there's, there's um, the initial stage when you start having anovulatory cycles. And that means when you don't ovulate, it's after ovulation only that you produce progesterone. And every cell, every tissue in the body that has estrogen receptors also has progesterone receptors. So those two hormones work like 
two sides of a seesaw, right? And whenever you have an anovulatory cycle, and of course this can happen for women with PCOS and irregular cycles as younger women too, not just at menopause, but you get um, the effects of unopposed estrogen. So you're having a lot of estrogen stimulation if you um, if you're in that early stage of menopause, but you're not having the progesterone to balance it out. So estrogen is famously a growth hormone. So it it creates um, a lot of cell turnover. It creates a lot of stimulation to the brain. Um, so women can have more like anxiety or st- feelings of stress because progesterone really tamps that down. Um, it's what builds up the lining of the uterus and then progesterone is what maintains it. So you can start to get some irregular cycles or heavy bleeds if you've got a lot of estrogen dominance happening, um, because we live in an estrogenizing environment. So most women have more problems with, um, estrogen, estrogen excess than efficiency at the beginning of menopause. And then you start to go into the period where what's technically perimenopause, where your cycles have become irregular, and then you're not postmenopausal the third stage until you haven't had a period for a full year. So the perimenopausal period is really the sort of roller coaster when the when the ovaries are and the whole symphony between the brain and the ovaries, the um, hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, the HPO axis is really starting to slow down. So your estrogen is coming down, but your progesterone is coming down much more dramatically those months that you're not ovulating. So that period of time can really produce, you know, the the hot flashes, the night sweats, the insomnia, um, the the weight gain, um, the fatigue, the muscle aches and pains, um, brain fog, memory issues, or maybe not even memory issues, but the word recall, um, which I hear from so many women. Um, and I've experienced that myself and I pride myself on having an excellent memory. So it's really frustrating when you're like, wait, I know what that actor's name, why can't I think of that actor's name? You know? So, so all of these things are normal and natural and you're going through this kind of roller coaster period. But when you come out at the other end, you really do have a new baseline and things should, you know, stabilize. And then you're, you're, you know, then you can live life and have as much sex as you want without worrying about getting pregnant if that's not what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. yeah, there's, there's um, a whole, you know, benefit to this process, um, you know, really maturing a woman, you know, and really like, um, in, in my mind, it's really like a lovely stage to think about, you know, all the stuff that you used to care about or used to worry about when you were younger, there's a lot of things you don't have to pay too much attention to anymore. And I find that that's the case for almost every menopausal woman that I know, like she's just changed her focus in life to some degree, you know, not, not, it's not a radical transformation for everyone, but um, it's a wonderful thing. And that's just not really a valued process in our society, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you're invisible now. You're not attractive or you're all dried up. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is how hormone replacement was, was created um, was certainly not, uh, you know, necessarily to make women feel better. It was created to, so that men could, you know, still want to have sex with their wives. I mean, literally that's how it was marketed Hmm. to the doctors. I mean, it's, it's a horrific history actually. When you read about the history of hormone replacement therapy and um, there's some great books out there, um, Hmm. which my my menopausal brain, I can't remember the title of the book, but I'll, I'll find it and I'll send it to you and you can put it in the show notes. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's a really I think important to know. Um, yeah. I, um, the, I think the, um, when this, I think the, one of the things that's really um, difficult for people, um, women who are going through menopo- the menopausal transition is when they never discuss this with someone like a parent or a grandparent or even friends. And it's like all of a sudden they feel like 
the wheels are coming off and, and, um, it takes, you know, talking to someone or having a friend mention it, or, you know, it just eventually comes together like, Oh, this is what's going on. Um, I think where we're moving towards, you know, more and more. And even when I was, you know, 20 years ago, I was talking about supporting women through the menopausal transition, being on the lookout for it. And so that you have kind of this more, um, this process that has a raft around it. So do you, do you believe in that philosophy as far as, you know, sort of those three to five years of transition of having some things in place to support? I think, I think that, you know, if you, if you're taking good care of yourself, you know, through your forties, um, thirties and forties, but certainly, uh, you know, when you turn 40, I mean, it's absolutely going to set you up for a much, much better menopausal transition. Um, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I, I'm going to be 53 later this month. And, um, I've had a couple of hot flashes, you know, I've had a little bit of, you know, word recall stuff, but, um, overall I feel great and I'm still menstruating every month. So it might change, you know, but Mm -hmm. I think the more you learn how to take care of yourself. And when I mean that is not just, you know, healthy eating and exercise and, um, you know, taking vitamins and supplements, et cetera, but just what we're talking about, right, is is learning what it actually means to take care of yourself and like what you need and like actually thinking about what do I need, you know, because mm-hmm. now that, you know, everyone around me doesn't maybe need me so much or I'm just going to prioritize myself in a certain kind of way. So absolutely, I think that that becomes a lot easier Um as we age and as we, you know, take better care of ourselves over time, that's a cumulative effect, you know, um, Mm -hmm. if you're routinely doing things to, you know, keep your eliminations and detoxification and all of those important things that, you know, we're all living in a toxic world. Um, we're all living in an estrogenizing world. So it's important to, you know, be aware of, of healthy habits around those types of things. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely true that it, it'll set you up and just, yeah, and to have the foresight, if, you've, if you're lucky enough to have older siblings or parents or grandparents um, to help you acknowledge what's really going on. And the fact that, you know, you're not going to feel like a million bucks every single day. Nobody does. That's not real. Um, mm-hmm. And to really accept the the process is going to go a long way to be become that raft that you mentioned. I like that analogy. I'm going to yeah. do that. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's uh, you know, in, in the days when we were getting trained, um, that was be, kind of before there was a lot of these functional tests out, and you know, someone we were thinking someone was going through the menopausal transition. We would we would um, draw up an FSH to look and, and kind of see if there was ovulation going on and maybe um, estradiol and progesterone on certain days of the month, testosterone, DHEA, those kinds of basic foundational lab work. Now we're, we're seeing a lot of these more advanced functional tests come out where they're looking at metabolites and other factors that can go into this process, detoxification factors, um, neurotransmitters. Are you are you going in that direction with these testing or are you sticking with kind of the foundations? Great question. I had a new patient today. Her chief complaint was hot flashes, night sweats. Um, She's otherwise very healthy. She's never talked to a naturopath before, has no idea what naturopathic medicine has to offer. Um, So at the end of the visit, I always sort of give people a sort of mini assessment, you know, just to give them an idea of like, okay, from what I've gleaned, speaking with you for the last 50 minutes or so. Um, here's what I'm thinking. And I told her that very thing. I said, we're going to do some foundational stuff. I, I want a diet diary and we're going to talk about your diet. And of course I need to know your blood type. And she knew her blood type, which was handy. Um, and then, you know, I'll prescribe some natural medicines if she's not where she wants to be or where I would like to see her in two or three months, then I'll probably do some hormone metabolite testing. Um, but 
I usually start as simple as I can. I don't love to use a lot of tests unless they're necessary. Um, you know, the big ones that I use are hormone metabolic testing, the organic acid tests, and I use GI maps um, for people with GI problems a lot. But a test is only ever as good as you can put it into clinical context as a clinician, right? And mm -hmm. who cares what tests say if, you know, it doesn't make sense with the patient that's sitting in front of you. So um, I've definitely gone that direction along with the profession, but um, I'm no, you know, functional MD. I don't do $8,000 worth of testing. I don't, I don't even do $1,000 worth of testing, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's, um, it's always been my experience that patients really appreciate that. Um, if you can get them well without that, you know, then, then there's always the patients that want that objective finding. Um, I also do regulation thermography in my practice. So, um, that's a different lens of looking at the way the central nervous system is regulating all these different um, organs and tissues. So that's another um, wonderful tool that I can use. And sometimes I use it as a, as an entry point. Um, like say if somebody's just got fatigue and just like some indigestion or maybe not even any digestive symptoms, you know, I might do a regulation thermography or if they have specific concerns about breast health um, or specific concerns about, uh, you know, uh, brain function, then I might do that. But sometimes I don't even, you know, start with, with any type of testing. Um, and most people who come in and see me, they already have some, you know, routine blood work. Um, so I, I'm always piecemealing. Every patient is different, but I'm, I don't rely on those tests a yeah. tremendous amount. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's interesting, like, being trained in the era when a lot of these tests weren't around, you just saw good clinical medicine, um, you know, with a good intake, a good history, and, you know, good clinical reasoning, and maybe some basic blood work. Um, and then you would see that the, with a proper assessment that the modalities and treatments generally work, you know, so it gives you a perspective that, um, the test is not like uh, this holy grail. Yeah. And I think, you know, and in the time of COVID, we've lost the ability to put our hands on people a lot, but, um, you know, getting really good with physical exam and just, just even doing, you know, vitals and just very basic stuff, just like, you know, our medicine is really relationship-based medicine. Um, mm -hmm. And we're fortunate enough to, to have a, uh, the ability, you know, because of the way our practices are usually set up to spend so much more time with people um, than the, you know, mainstream model um, that we learn so much about our patients. I mean, I have patients I've been seeing for 20 years um, and it's just, it's awesome. Like, you know, they, they, they're like, you know, my, my patient family members, you know, I mean, it's really, it's really, uh, a trust, trusted relationship, you know, and then I have patients who, you know, I suspect this woman that I saw today that I was just talking about, um, I suspect she's going to be one of those that hopefully we, you know, work together three or four sessions. And then I don't ever hear from her again, because she's, she's managed her menopause symptoms, and she's feeling good. And she doesn't need a naturopath on an ongoing basis. So yeah, yeah. And I've, I've really seen that where, um, people who have really done a good job taking care of themselves and um, they just need some refinement. They can go through menopause, not need bioidentical hormone replacement, um, not need to even consider it. And then others that might have more complex things going on and may have had lifetimes of illnesses and imbalances and other traumas. And they might need that. They might need that support. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it runs the gamut. And, um, you know, that's the, the beauty is finding out what, what, what the patient really needs. And sometimes they need just education from us, and then they can learn how to take care of themselves. And sometimes it requires, you know, changes to their protocols and therapies, recommendations and all of that. Um, so it, it really is such a, an individual process of getting people from, you know, imbalance to balance and 
from sickness to health. Great. Well, I'd love to hear before we um, close for today, just some thoughts about like the things that you're challenged by, you know, at this stage of your career, the puzzles you're, you're working on, the models that you're trying to figure out. I just, I'd love to hear because, you know, you're, see, I'm in year 15. And so I'd love to just kind of hear yeah. what goes through, you know, at, tw- at 22 years in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there's this wily virus that's been released. On- <laughs> um, still trying to figure that one out along yeah. with everybody else. Um, but no joking aside, um, we are going to see, you know, a tremendous amount of people with long COVID. Um, I have, you know, probably 20 of those folks in my practice already, which is crazy considering I'm just a little solo practitioner. Um, and so that's certainly something I'm constantly learning as much as I can about. And it does intersect with um, my deep interest in the immune system and chronic inflammation and chronic response to patterns of pathogen infections. You know, most of the time when I'm treating Lyme disease or Bartonella or Babesia or EBV, I'm not treating an active infection. I'm treating the after effects, if you will, the patterns, the signatures that have been locked into these people's immune systems and into the extracellular matrix and in their connective tissue and all of that. So a couple of years ago, um, I started learning about LDI, which I don't know if you're familiar with. Um, So I started using low-dose immunotherapy. um, And so that's been a real excellent um, complement to the kind of homeopathy that I practice. It's, it's, it's very similar to isopathy for the listeners that aren't familiar with it. Um, there's some information on my website about it, but, um, also Dr. Ty Vincent, who's the doctor who's teaching me, um, has a bunch of YouTube videos and it's basically like using very, very low dilutions, like much, much lower than like an allergy shot would be, for example, Um, And it's using it sublingual drops. It doesn't have to be injected, but um, to stimulate the body's natural healing uh, to whatever allergen or antigen that you're using. So I've been using that for a lot of chronic Lyme, um, for chronic herpes infections, for allergies, environmental allergies, for um, food sensitivities. Um, And I'm still you know, it's a, it's an art like anything else. I'm still trying to figure out how to make that a a, a super effective therapy, but I've seen some awesome results already when, you know, doing the whole nutrigenomic and and nutrients and herbal medicines and, uh, you know, all of that hasn't gotten a person where they want to be. Um, I often will do LDI as one of those deeper layers of, of addressing, uh, of addressing individual chronic illness. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's a fascinating therapy. Um, and I know you have to be um, trained pretty deeply in, in to learn how to do it. Um, so yeah. I mean, it's pretty easy. If you have that homeopathy background, it makes a lot of sense um, because there's definitely got to be something energetic about it. The dilutions are extremely, extremely low. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's pretty amazing to see, like, uh, you know, of course I experimented on my teenage son first before doing it in my practice, mm-hmm. he had really, really tremendously bad, um, allergies to dust mites and animal dander. And we have dogs and, um, and I had to give him maybe three doses and, um, he's like 98% better. Wow amazing yeah. that's that's great yeah because you know we send a lot of people out for the the various allergy drops that are given in an allergist they go on them for six months i i don't see like a slam dunk with those too often but, yeah um, pretty amazing yeah i had another young woman who was just you know had just mentioned in passing that she she was here for hormonal issues but she mentioned how um she had moved to a new house and she had to take Zyrtec every single day or she was just really miserable. 
And I was like, okay, let me just give you a couple drops of this. Let's see how it goes. And she called me like a week later. She's like, what did you give me? I haven't had to take Zyrtec and I'm like not mm. seeing. And so, you know, sometimes it's wonderful when you get those, yeah. those bullets. Especially, especially <laughs> with all the mold problems out there. Yeah. Mold. Yes. Um, well, in closing, um, if you could just give us a few take-home messages, that would be great. Or one take-home message, if that's okay. Um, uh, and then just to hear a little bit about what you're up to, how people can work with you. Um, any other things you want to just sort of yeah, mention? Yeah, totally. Um, the the take-home message I would say to anybody listening that has chronic illness is just don't give up hope. Um, everyone is so different and that's been a theme through our entire conversation. So individual, um, even if you've, you know, tried a number of things, there's always more. So don't, don't give up hope. Um, there's, there's more and more that naturopathic medicine has to offer. Find yourself a, a naturopath that you connect with and somebody that's interested in really pursuing, um, you know, as creatively as possible, what's going to help you. So don't give up hope um, because the world is a challenging place and people are sick. There's a lot of sick people. Um, as far as uh, working with me, there's a couple things I have going on. I mean, I'm, I'm still in private practice. This is my office. Um, I'm accepting new patients and um I have a website with this, which is just my name, which is just gingernash.com. If you're particularly interested in my women's health in the context of culture um, work, I have a, a second business called Feminology, and we have a really great, lively Facebook group if you're on Facebook. So it's feminology.org is our website. But um, the Feminology group, there's a page as well, but there's a group Feminology on Facebook. And um, it's a women only group, but we share a lot of information about health. And it's really important for me and my partner in that endeavor, Dr. Tara Nayak, to make naturopathic medicine accessible. Unfortunately, it's not accessible for a lot of people. Um, so we do give away a lot of knowledge and wisdom and free content. So please find us there. Um, and then also this year, I have promised myself after many years of, of, of telling myself I'm going to do this, I'm going to launch a professional course. So I'm going to launch a course on how I do homeopathy because I just don't think there are a lot of naturopaths out there that practice the way I do. So it'll be focused on, it'll be sort of, you know, some philosophy and miasm and all of that, but it's really going to be clinically focused, broken down into you know, complex homeopathy for GI complaints, for women's health, for chronic Lyme, for pathogens, you know, et cetera. So I'm excited about that. If you are a practitioner or a professional um, that's interested, you know, you can just email me and I'll get you on my professional email list. Um, mm. And my email is really simple. It's, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. So I'll yeah. put my website and all of that. And it's pretty easy to find me. If you Google Nash, my website is the first thing that comes up. So. Excellent. Yeah. Well, great. Well, um, I mean this with all sincerity. You are a true gift to our profession, and I can tell you're a gift to your community and patients. I mean, it's. Uh, I hope people experience this talk like I did as far as just really seeing kind of the best of our medicine come together. Oh, <laughs> and I, I, I don't see it represented so balanced and grounded. Um, usually there's just like extremes of all the different versions. So um, thank you. Bellatry abounds everywhere these days in all realms and natural yes. medicine is no exception, sadly, but I, I appreciate your energy too. And um, I would love to visit you IRL someday. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> when, yeah. When it's safe, let's, let's get together for Sounds sure. Great. Well, thank you for your time. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these, the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit 
from it forward the the episode to them and i'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them so once again we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the one thing podcast and again much appreciation for you being here with me